The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Just last week, I was invited up to Dawson City, Yukon Territory in Canada as a guest of both the Yukon Department of Economic Development and the Yukon Mining Alliance. It was an amazing trip. A bevy of fellow journalists, investors, and Mining Alliance company principals were in attendance. I didn't see darkness for days in the land of the midnight sun, and I toured three mining projects while I was there. In this segment, I'll speak with Kitco contributor and investor David Erfley of JuniorMinerJunkie.com. I'll also chat with the Yukon's 21st century pioneer prospector, Sean Ryan, about his white gold project. I'll visit with Firewood Zinc's Brandon McDonald and industry icon Greg Johnson, the president of Metallic Minerals. David Erfley is a self-taught mining sector investor. He stumbled upon the mining sector in 2003 as he was looking to invest in a growing sector of the market. After researching the gains made from the 2001 bottom in the tiny gold and silver sector, he became fascinated with this niche market. So much so that in 2005, he decided to sell his home and invest the entire proceeds from the sale into junior mining companies. When his account had tripled by September 2007, he decided to quit his job as the telecommunications equipment buyer at UCLA and make investing in this sector his full-time job. David, welcome to the program. What do you see? Opportunity here in the Yukon? Well, I'm invested in four companies. The first one is White Gold Corporation, and they've done two strategic investments with majors. The first one they did was, uh, well, basically Agnico Eagle funded their, their projects to begin with. They're cashed up for three years of drilling, and they have some extra money left over after that cash is gone, too. So basically what they've done, what White Gold has done, is has uh, tied up the rest of Sean Ryan's claims that haven't been optioned off to other companies. And like I said, it's tied up 40% of the White Gold district. Uh, it was 30% before Kinross came along and gave Sean back the uh, White Gold property, which Underworld developed and then Kinross purchased right at the top of the last bull market. So that was the first major to come into the Yukon, but it was an unopportune time because it was a major that bought an exploration project at the top of bull market. And then when the bull was over and the gold price started crashing, all exploration projects were shelved. So the Yukon was pretty much forgotten about again. Then the end of 2015 comes along and the sector bottoms and starts to go up again. Well, actually before that, you could you could you throw in Kamenak. Kamenak, who was developing the uh, coffee project during the bear market, was able to sell it to Gold Corp in May, I believe, of, of last year. And that brought in the second major into the White Gold District. And then after that, we actually had a major back in the White Gold District during 
what appeared to be the beginnings of a bull market, the other major said, hey, wait a minute, that looks like a nice playground that we want to be in. After Gold Corp, Agnico started up the White Gold Project, with uh, funded that, and then you had a Newmont giving Gold Strike $56 million, I think, right around there. And then after that, you had Barrick coming in and giving Attack, which has a very remote property in the Yukon here. There's no infrastructure at all. But it's a huge Carlin trend. Yes, exactly. Attack is an interesting story, too. During the, the, the bull market, their market cap actually got up to around a billion dollars. That's hard to believe, yeah, but it is. <laughs> it is, but that's this sector. It's, that's what can happen in this sector when it gets exciting. The retail money starts to come back. Well, you can look at this sector right now in the short term, or you can look at it long and, you know, being in it and dealing with it every day as an investor and also a journalist. I'm a bit confused, and maybe rightly so. What are your thoughts here in July of 2017? As far as the sector is concerned? Oh, yeah, well, I'm really, really impressed of how the GDX has, has withstood this latest sold flush. The GDX is holding really strong support at 21. There's not a lot of volume. I don't see any urgency to sell. I don't see any panic selling. I just see a lot of lethargy. And I also see a few companies actually at 52-week highs. It's very fascinating. It's a contrarian's time as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're having so much money still pouring into this sector. You're seeing private placements that are oversubscribed and then supersized. A great example is a company like uh, Bonterra, who has a, a two nice properties in, in, in Quebec and one in the, in the, in the windfall area, which is very hot right now. You got a Cisco drilling 400,000 meters and tying up all the assay labs. But uh, Bonterra has a property right next door on trend with windfall. And just less than six months ago, they had two properties and less than $2 million in the bank. After three financings now, one of them with a major, they have $40 million. So a micro cap has now got $40 million to spend. That's fascinating. That company was completely restructured with regard to management. The property was always good, but right. going back about seven or eight years, it's amazing that they were able to restructure it, hold it together, and get mm-hmm. financed like that. Absolutely, yeah. I, I wrote a piece on this, uh, my weekly column in Kitco. On February 6th, you had three strategic financings on the same day in the Windfall District, and they were all upsized. So we can expect to see a lot more of that right now. I believe so, yes. When I was at PDAC, I didn't see any Asian money. It was a lot of European money. Wanted the sector, and I'm continuing to see that. Interesting. They're seeing a lot of inexpensive opportunity, and they're getting right. into a level where they're going long. It's really not right. a trading mentality, is right. it? Right, and they're exiting a dying currency, which is the euro. So, <laughs> so they need to diversify out of that. <laughs> so while there may be seemingly some bearish trends, you're not one of those people that's feeling that. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. If it was a bearish trend, you wouldn't see all this money coming into the sector. If it was a bearish trend, you wouldn't see all these quality companies bifurcating from the sector. If it was a bearish trend, you wouldn't see companies right now at a 52-week high. So all the pundits that are spewing that nonsense really don't know the stories? No, not really. And and I shouldn't have said 52-week high. I should have said four-year high. There's a handful of companies that are at their four-year high. And what happened four years ago? The gold price lost $1,500 an ounce. That's what happened four years ago. So a lot of these companies are already trading, are already telling you that gold's about to go to $1,500 an ounce. There's some really amazing opportunities right now that we really haven't seen in quite a long time and and they're there. Absolutely, absolutely. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. When you have an ETF like the GDXJ and the GDX, the GDXJ is the is technically the junior sector, but it's a it's junior ETF, but it's actually a mid-tier ETF. And the GDX, which is the major global minor ETF, GDX went down 
100%, and the GDXJ was down 90% in 2015. And also, what a lot of people don't know is the mining sector, in relation to the gold price, has actually been in a bear market for 20 years. A huge gap between the price of gold and, and mining stocks. Absolutely. The XAU, when it hit 41, again, in uh, 2015, the last time it was at 41, gold was at $250 an ounce. How can we find you? You can find me at www.juniorminerjunkie.com, and that's junkie with with a Y, my ode to uh, William Burroughs. And, <laughs> and I'm based in Sierra Madre, California, like you said, and I also do a weekly column for Kitco. comes out every Friday at Friday uh, afternoon. David, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you, Alice. I've been speaking with investor and newsletter writer David Erfley. His website is juniorminerjunkie.com. We've been visiting at the Yukon Mining Alliance Conference in Dawson City, Yukon. David mentioned a company that he's invested in during the segment, White Gold Corp., trading under the symbol WGO on the TSX Venture Exchange. Our group of journalists flew via helicopter to one of the company's drill sites on their project in the Yukon with legendary prospector and White Gold Chief Technical Advisor, Sean Ryan. On the trip with me, the mercenary geologist, Mickey Fulp, Mining.com's Mike McRae, the resource maven, Gwen Preston, and resource opportunities, James Qantas. Here's my conversation with Sean Ryan. Sean, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Last time we spoke was about a year ago, and I was in Los Angeles, and you were... In the Yukon. In the Yukon. And we're on the White Gold Project, which for me came out of nowhere, but for you, I think you staked it many years ago, didn't you? That's right. We started back in 2002. So give us a history of the project and why it's of interest now and why you have two majors that are involved. Well, what we kind of did is we've combined all of my claims that I had in this district. That was well over 12,000 claims. So, and then we packaged it all up and put it into one company. I decided to try to make a super company instead of piecemealing it out. And then what we ended up doing was we kind of had a lot of data from historical exploration, and that was mostly soil work from the last 2010 to 12 rush. And then when we, it's kind of like the analogy is like building a race car, and they've almost got everything done except for the tires and the motor maybe. And the idea was we had a lot of data ready to go. And so by packaging it up and coming up with this drones to drill technology, we came up with like a better mousetrap, a faster way of actually evaluating all this ground. And hence, that's why Ignico and uh, Kinross kind of backed us up in this deal because they like the technology and the speed that we could look at things now. So you had these properties for a while or did they go away and come back to you? Yeah, no, they were held like uh, what happened was we staked them, optioned them out and they were options for four-year options and the guys couldn't make the year three and four payments and the market crashed. So they just kind of gave back the keys and we sat on them and kind of perfected our drones to drills technology stuff, kind of techniques. And then... Now that the market started turning, it was ready to come out into the woodwork there. So you perfected those techniques on some of the other companies that you've been involved with before you landed on this one and said, hey, let's go. No, well, what I ended up doing was when everybody left by 2012, like it was like a ghost town. So everybody left. So I said, you know what? We did quite well in the last rush, but we could do better. So we went back to the drawing board and we looked at how do we actually do exploration? How could we refine it? tweak it up yeah so when everybody was gone so I did that on my own dime for the last three or four years and then now we've commercially put it out into the market I don't see a huge crew out here you don't need that with the technology you've got going now that's right so that's the biggest thing is our footprint is quite small we've refined these new drills had a they're rab drills rotary air blast drills so we don't use water so we're sitting up on top of a mountaintop here and normally I'd have to have a water line going for a mile and a half to the nearest creek 
because we have air compressors, we could station the air compressor in the middle of the drill site and I'd get up to 500 meters away with lay flat hose from the compressor. And so we created this rover drill that's kind of remote control, the guys walk behind it, but then they have to operate it when they set it up. But the idea is I don't need a helicopter anymore. No pad building, there's no core splitting because it's chips. So we've taken a lot of the, the expense out of actually doing the first exploratory holes on a property. So the investment by these majors goes a long way. Well, what 15 million that Ignico Eagle put into the into the kitty in today's dollars is like in 2011 dollars is closer to 60 million dollars. So that's the difference. So we're working on a 20 cents on the dollar to 25 cents. Now you've got gold, lead, zinc, silver. How's that going to play out down the road? Well, this project it has a peculiar geochemical signature, which is the gold, arsenic, antimony, and then lead, zinc, silver. So that's a specific fingerprint model. So really, we're not looking for the base metals. There's byproducts. They'll probably be not even close to economic grade. So, But that's just a geochemical footprint. Most of our systems we're looking for are mostly just gold, arsenic, antimony systems, or gold only. How active are you in this particular company? I'm a director, and I'm their technical director, so I'm the guy sitting in the background going, are we doing it right? Can we tweak it? Can we improve it? So we have geos that are running the main stuff, but I'm the guy in the background making sure that the money's being spent well because my real back-end interest is I have royalty on all these projects. And we got Gold Corp opening up one mine that I'm going to pick up a royalty on, and the idea is that I'm looking for more ore for basically for the rest of the mines that, that are potentially going to come into production here. So we can see more consolidations and packages from you down the road. Well, I've pretty well packaged this up. So to give you an idea, I've, you know, a few years ago, I actually owned over 55,000 claims in the Yukon. And so and now I'm down to three, <laughs> 3,000. <000. laughs> so we got rid of quite a few packages. <laughs> we're always looking. So that's, we're beating the bush. Never say good enough. <laughs> Well, Sean, thanks so much for joining us today in the program. Thank you. Yeah, welcome to the Yukon on a mountaintop. <laughs> Glad to be here. Thanks yeah. for bringing me here. I've been visiting with Sean Ryan, Chief Technical Advisor for White Gold Corp. Trading as WGO on the TSX Venture Exchange. Next, our group traveled to Fireweed Zinc's McMillan Pass Zinc Lead Silver Project. Fireweed Zinc trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FWZ. The company has been trading for just over a month and already has a share price of near 90 cents, which in my opinion speaks to the potential size and the excitement of this project. We went to the mining camp. I saw firsthand the impressive infrastructure and spoke with company CEO Brandon McDonald. Brandon, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Alice. Well, thanks for bringing me out to the site. Now tell me, this is one of the most exciting zinc projects I've seen it in a long, long, long time. And you're very hopeful that it will be one of the most exciting projects in the sector. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about the project is that we already have a tremendous resource here, but I think people are perhaps not recognizing what exploration upside we have as well. Like, we don't think it's nearly done yet. We think what we're seeing here is perhaps a fraction of what we're capable of finding. I've seen some of the maps that you've shown me, and I've taken a look at some of the structures, and there's a lot of room for stepping out. There's a lot of room for, as you say, upside as far as resources concerned. Any idea where that might go? It would be hard and perhaps dangerous to have too much congestion 
conjecture on that, but you do look at certain zones, particularly the Tom West zone, that known mineralization is, is defined only by where the drill holes exist. It's not cut off at any point, so it's open in every direction but up, and it's not open up because of daylights. So you look at something like that, that it's of itself, I think, close to 15 million tons, so um, there's tremendous capacity to add tons to that. And I think you'd be adding tons by the million at a time. Let's talk about offtake. This is a great opportunity for you to perhaps market to the Chinese and to the U.S. Yeah, you know, I think the concentrate from here would almost unquestionably go to Asia. The last two zinc projects to sell out of Yukon as well sold to the Chinese. So we know that there's a strong likelihood that any potential partner on this project is going to come from China. And if not that, probably Japan or Korea, both of which have tremendous zinc smelting capabilities. At what point do you hypothetically approach that market? Early, now, as in we already are. The truth is that in a lot of these places and with these big corporates and, and the cultures they're working in, it takes a long time for them to warm up to a company and a project. So your first touches are gentle. You know, you're just really getting them to know you, making sure they know the project and they're following it. But you want to make sure it's on their radar. They're unlikely to close a transaction quickly. Like, you know, you can see a lot of Western mining companies come in and very quickly do their due diligence and close a transaction. You don't see that often with the Asian ones. And you've had some significant interest in the stock lately. Yeah, you know, so we IPO'd, I think about six weeks ago, started trading on June 1st, and we're up about 70% over the IPO price, getting pretty good volume. And, and I still think that if you look at what we have in the ground here and what our exploration potential is, there's still tremendous upside on that. Let's take a look ahead for the rest of the summer. What are your plans? The program this summer will focus on a 2,000 meter drill program. Uh, the purpose of that program first is to support an updated resource, which will be released in, I would imagine, November or December this year. That includes confirmation drilling, infill drilling, and step-out drilling. Uh, so we would be looking to move some tons from inferred to indicated, as well as grow the tonnage. And then on the back of that, it will ultimately support a PEA that we expect to be out in the first half of next year. So where do you see the company fall 2018? Well, fall 2018, I imagine we're wrapping up next summer's program, and I would imagine next summer's program looks substantially different than this summer's. I would imagine it's an order of magnitude larger. And once we demonstrate good economics on the project, uh, it's time to go full speed ahead. And, and there's a, a tremendous amount of drilling uh, among other work, including engineering and environmental to do if you really want to drive this project forward. Brandon, thank you so much for joining me today in the program. And thanks for having us out here. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad to have everyone out here. I've been speaking with Brandon McDonald, the CEO of Fireweed Zinc, trading as FWZ on the TSX Venture Exchange, a potential world-class zinc project in the Yukon. Next, our group spent the night in Kino City, Yukon, very close to Metallic Minerals' Kino Silver Project. We drove out there with company director Bill Harris, VP of Community Relations Susan Craig, and CEO Greg Johnson, who I've interviewed many times on this program. Metallic Minerals is just about a year old and trades on the TSX Venture Exchanger's MMG and in the U.S. as MMNGF. Here's my interview with Greg Johnson. Greg, welcome to the program and thanks for having me here on the project. Well, it's great to have you out here on site in Kino City, Yukon. We spent the entire day, probably four and a half, five hours, looking at the expanse of the properties that you have attached to metallic minerals. Tell us about it. Well, it is a, a huge area. It has a terrific history as well. This area was discovered shortly after the Klondike Gold Rush back in the 1890s and was developed fairly rapidly as a high-grade silver district by these independent parties and saw over 
200 million ounces of production. Just astronomical grades, 40 ounce per ton silver grades. Well, the old timers really didn't mess around with low grade because they couldn't really afford to. At that point, there weren't any roads, so they had to dig this stuff up by hand. It had to be so high grade they could mine it by hand and then either carry it off on their backs or by dog sled in the winter or horse train in the summer to be shipped down for processing somewhere else. But with that process, it just really started to understand how large this system is in this Kino Hill district. Tell us about the land package, the assembly of it, and the metamorphosis of the former company into what we have now called Metallic Minerals. We are new in terms of the company's only been trading as Metallic Minerals on the venture for about a year now, this month, July of last year. But it's been a long time in building. One of our directors, Bill Harris, started acquiring ground here in the Keno District more than 10, 15 years ago. We now have the second largest land position in the Keno District. Our neighbor is Alexco Resource Corp, and they have one of the highest grade 43101 resources for silver in the world. They're looking at a mine plan that's going to have over 850 gram per ton silver, which by average in the industry, probably around 300 grams, so just spectacular grades. And it's a district that it has this long history of mining and production, but because the land ownership in the district was so patchwork due to its long history of individual groups working in it, it's taken a long time to assemble this package. And now we've got something of scale on trend with historic production. And in fact, we have seven past producers on our ground. Some of these were the highest grade producers in the district. So really all you have to do is measure beyond some of those production veins. Yeah, this is one of these great opportunities where we call it brownfields, areas where you've got historic production. You can see the head frames, you can see the open pits on trend. You know that where that vein zone continues, you dig it in the right area and you're going to be able to find something interesting. So our team of geologists, are we've been assembling our information over the winter. We've been out in the field since May starting to collect geophysical data, geochemical data, using these as layers and tools to understand where to prioritize and look. And we'll be starting to drill this August on the very top initial priority areas with the hope that we can prove our concept up, demonstrate that the historic mining that was done at the surface continues to depth, and then as you say, start to move towards building resources and really establishing that the eastern end of the district is as perspective as this historically produced western end. Now let's talk about how you capitalized and your share structure. Yeah, so we're a newish company in terms of only a year out. We've got about 45 million shares. We've got $2 million in cash and we've got about $2.5 million in in-the-money warrants that's starting to come in. So we're in a good financial position to carry out our programs this year. The market has been a challenging one over the last going on a year now for the sector. We had quite a run in 2016 and we've seen kind of a consolidation, but this has really presented an attractive opportunity for people looking at quality names in the space to get them at, at levels that are, again, back to very deeply discounted levels uh, compared to historic norms. So looking at the sector today and silver in particular, it's uh, it's at one of its highs in terms of the ratio of price to gold. I think this is an excellent time to be looking at precious metals in general and silver specifically. When you think of the Yukon, unless you've been here, which I have and many people have not, you might think, well, where's the infrastructure? Isn't it cold during the winter? Where are the roads? All of that is here, and I've been on those roads. Yeah, it's, it's really quite exciting. We've got grid power right here at site. We've got all-season roads. The port, deep water, year-round port, is already shipping concentrate. So all those things that sometimes can cost billions of dollars for a big mine are already here. So it means 
the hurdle rate for us to find something really significant is, is quite low. Plus, our next door neighbor has got an operating mill that can handle extra capacity. They've already told you that, right? Absolutely. They're, they're, they're very happy to see us here in the district, helping to snap together the land package, knowing our background and history, long-term history of collaboration. This is a great opportunity for us as a company. It's a great opportunity for our neighbor with a mill that will want to see more feed. Greg, thanks so much for joining me today in the program, and thanks for bringing me up here. Well, really glad to have you and look forward to uh, providing you updates in the near future. I've been chatting with Greg Johnson of Metallic Minerals, trading as MMG on the TSX Venture Exchange and MMNGF in the U.S. Finally, in this Yukon-based segment, I visited with another periodic guest on the show, Tara Christie, the president of Banyan Gold, trading as BYN on the TSX Venture Exchange and BYAGF in the U.S. Tara, please give our audience an overview of the company. Banyan Gold is an exciting early stage exploration company in the Yukon. We're primarily looking for gold. Our main asset is the Highland Gold Project, which is down in southeast Yukon, about 70 kilometers from Watson Lake. It's a road accessible, fully permitted for 10 years of exploration. Gold deposit, we have an initial 400,000 ounce resource at one gram, and we're actively exploring on that project, just about to start ramping up our field program. We've allocated a million dollars for an exploration program out there this year. We'll be doing over 4,000 meters of drilling with 3,000 of that targeting expanding the resource at the main zone and with the other quarter of that drilling being spent at our peripheral prospects where we also think there's high potential for near surface oxide resources. It's a sediment hosted structurally controlled gold deposit which is very similar to a tax Rackla project or the Marigold mine, Silver Standards Marigold mine in Nevada and we're pretty excited about what we're going to find this year. You've assembled a property with the help of Alexco and also Victoria Gold. Tell us about it. Well, those two properties, the McQuestion property was held by Alexco Resources and the Oryx property was held by uh, Victoria Gold. And since those properties were staked, there has not been a property consolidation so that one single explorer could put together all of the geology and all the historic results and explore across the property boundary. And given what's known about the mineralization and a good percentage of it occurring right along the property boundary, it's a pretty exciting time for us to be able to put that story together. We just finished a field program both to calibrate the historic data. We've been working on the database compilation since the time we signed the letter of an agreement back in March and we spent a bunch of time in the field from early May through till last week calibrating that data, reopening some old trenches and mapping them in the current context and what we understand about the geology and structure in the area now as well as putting in some new trenches. We then did some step out drilling from some of the historic drilling to confirm structures and also do some oriented course so that we could understand and correlate the different stratigraphic units across the property. So that's a really exciting program. We're pretty happy with what we found and we'll be have results coming out in a few weeks and then carrying on from there from the, the drilling that we did later on in the season. And we're about to start up working on our Highland project. So that'll start ramping up on July 15th and go all the way through the middle of September. Now there's a lot of general interest in the Yukon through these reality shows that happen uh, on the Discovery Channel and all those channels. And a lot of it looks ridiculous and staged to me, but it, still people watch it. It's fascinating. You and your family have been up here for a long time. What do you say to some of these people that you must run into every now and then are coming up here looking for gold? Well, the reality shows certainly have brought up a lot of new people into the business. And I guess I always caution people who are getting into the placer business that it can't be People like me. It's a very expensive hobby and it does take some science and understanding of geology and placer deposits to be successful. 
and there are many people that have come up here and spent an awful lot of money and not left with very much in their pocket. That started in the gold rush. In the gold rush, you know, there were a few prospectors who made it really big, but then the people that made money as the tail end of the gold rush were the people selling the shovels, not the people operating the shovels. So very similar now, the people coming up have to be cognizant that they might be spending a lot of money and equipment and time, and without the proper due diligence and knowledge of what they're doing, they might be putting more money into the ground and paying those shovel operators a lot more than what they get back. Tara, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. <laughs> Thank you, Alice. Have a great day. I've been speaking with Tara Christie of Banyan Gold, trading as BYN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as BYAGF. I hope you've enjoyed this segment. You can hear it again on our website, ellismartreport.com. From Dawson City in the Yukon Territory, I'm Ellis Martin. Thanks for coming along with us. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.B and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced last year that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley, not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Patrick, welcome back to the program. I noticed you're doing quite a bit of media right now. Some of it is sponsored like ours, some of it is not, but it's helpful in getting the word out, and as a shareholder of Pure Energy Minerals, I certainly do appreciate that. The season, I think, the summertime has led to a number of interview requests. As you point out, we're sponsoring our appearance in some media, such as people can find us on Stockhouse as a result of that, and we just did a nice interview with one of the Stockhouse writers. We also did a piece with Northern Miner, and I think it's topical, of course, as it has been over the last year or two to talk about lithium and electric vehicles and new energy stuff, and we're happy to do it as well. It gives us a chance to talk about things that are perhaps tangential or a little bit more philosophical about this kind of exciting space that we're in. What many people don't realize is that publicly traded companies, Patrick, have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to get the word out. You can be an alchemist turning sand into gold. And if no one knows about it, big deal. You're absolutely right, Alice. We have to be careful marketing, of course, because of the continuous disclosure requirements and the obligations under the securities regs. But at the same time, I find many times the shareholders just want to sort of swap ideas with us and hear our thoughts on some of the topical things in the field. And so this gives us an opportunity to do that. And then for those people who are sort of mavens on lithium batteries, electric vehicles, there's content like Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, with whom we did the world tour earlier this year. And they doing a feature piece on Pure Energy and their quarterly report coming up as well. That gets a little bit technical and a little bit nerdy about the lithium markets, but again, it's the kind of stuff that we find a lot of uh, investors are interested in reading. I know that Simon Moores and Benchmark have quite a large following as they are the unequivocal experts as far as research and analysis in the energy space. Again, I'm glad to hear that you're getting that kind of exposure. Well, I had a great interview with Simon Moores at Benchmark, and I had to chuckle. He asked me at one point what we thought our view on lithium pricing was, and as I told him, he's the expert, but 
we did swap you know stories back and forth and perspective and i think the overriding reality is that the demand for electric vehicles is strong and growing and the lithium supply isn't quite keeping up yet so as a result we see a great price outlook for lithium and we believe that's the kind of motivation and incentive that will help companies like ours continue to advance and it's an exciting story and as i said fun to talk about it with experts like simon and his team and when you're interviewed by expert journalists interviewing someone as knowledgeable as yourself it certainly does help shareholder awareness we never really talk about that factor very much on this program the lithium space is indeed story-driven as well. We've seen a fair amount of activity with your stock lately. It's certainly trading. In my opinion, lithium is still tied in movement with regard to gold, only perhaps conversely. When gold moves up, lithium stock prices may move down and vice versa. This is just what I've noticed lately, and I've been looking more closely at it since I've become a shareholder of Pure Energy Minerals. What an interesting perspective. To tell the truth, as you know, Ellis, I'm kind of an old gold guy as well, and I hadn't looked that much at the correlation, but you know, it kind of makes sense. We have gold out there as a hedge against uncertainty and risk and fear, as it were, and with all the sort of volatility in the world, we've seen that sort of seesaw up and down of late. And of course, lithium, a little bit more of an indication of where the mainstream economy is going, its energy needs are going. And of course, there's a relationship maybe to oil prices and things. Uh, I think you're probably right. When people feel good about the economy and are inspired by the message from guys like Elon Musk, the super future that lithium batteries are going to help realize, that gets people excited. But then when they worry about North Korea launching nuclear missiles, maybe it, it makes them nervous and they focus more on gold. So I do see a bit of that seesaw. And frankly, uh, as I said in, I think, the interview with Benchmark, the interesting thing right now is that the lithium fundamentals for the larger industry, batteries, electric vehicles, I just don't think they could be better. I mean, we've seen such an adoption now across the world's markets. We've seen the major car companies join the fray for electric vehicles. I really don't think that could be much more solid. And yet, we being the growth sector, as it will, the sort of speculative side of growth stocks in Canada in particular, are a little bit more cyclical based on sentiment and risk on versus risk off. And so we battle a little bit in that cycle. And frankly, we do our best to keep the shareholders informed, to deliver real results. And we hope that translates to an appreciating overall value market capitalization of the company. But it's not like we can focus every day on something that would move the share price. We believe the fundamentals take care of that. But we do live within these cycles, cycles upon cycles, really, Ellis. And we try to manage that the best we can. Can And again, we think having two great lithium projects and advancing them kind of at the same time is the best thing we can do for the future value of our company. I was talking with some of my fellow resource and mining journalists recently, and we were all saying that many of these projects will never go into production, but they are stories, stories that can attract a market perhaps, and it's risky to invest in some of the companies in that regard. What I can say about your company, Pure Energy Minerals, is that you focused on production. You have a potential offtake partner in Tesla right there in Nevada. You're right, Ellis. People kind of want to hear the story, but they want to see some reality with it. And so we've tried to set some milestones and to deliver to those milestones. And of course, recently in Clayton Valley, we published the much-awaited numbers from our preliminary economic assessment, and that's gotten things moving, gotten some exciting times for us. And then we've just kicked off work, the surface exploration program at Terracotta in Argentina. So we see this particular summer as a ramp-up period, really, to be ready for the northern fall, the late third and fourth quarters, when we'll 
get out and to do a little more marketing and, and be reporting on the results of the things that we're sort of kicking off right now in Clayton Valley and at Terracotta. We haven't spoken about Terracotta in a few weeks. What's going on there? We just press released tell us that we've kicked off that surface exploration program in Argentina and it has been the winter down there and we waited out a little bit of snow and, and so we could get the teams mobilized a couple of weeks ago. What we're doing first there, Ellis, is a type of geophysics from the surface that looks down a couple of hundred meters for conductive zones. So conductive zones, as you can imagine, might well be salty water. And of course, salty water in the Puna of Argentina very often means lithium. And we've seen previous historical work there that demonstrated a conductive zone down there, an attractive potential drill target. And we've gone in there and laid out a grid to conduct electrical soundings to measure the conductivity at depth. And we look forward to reporting on those results in just a few weeks. It's beautiful data because you can kind of see these salty zones down there that are the sort of tantalizing thing that we lithium brine explorers look for. So people should look for that news in a few weeks as we report back on that geophysics and just sort of ramp up to probable drilling there late in the year. Any updates on the Clayton Valley project? Clayton Valley, of course, we're wrapping up the technical report, which will be filed in a couple of weeks there from the PEA. And next week, we're convening the entire engineering team with our friends and providers from General Electric on their water treatment division and also Tonova Advanced Technologies on the solvent extraction. The guys who helped us develop that flow sheet that we reported on. And we're putting the whole team together in Denver next week for a couple of weeks. Very important because that's all about the scoping and initial design of the pilot plant that we intend to begin permitting and planning and moving quickly towards construction of the pilot plant in Clayton Valley. So next week's going to be a sort of get all the heads together in one room and get that pilot plant mapped out. So we're very excited about that as well. Patrick, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Thank you, Ellis. Always good to touch base with you and swap back and forth uh, our own stories from what we've been up to in the industry. Thanks again. Be sure to follow all the latest Pure Energy news, including what we discussed today, by going to their website, pureenergyminerals.com. I've been speaking with Patrick Highsmith, CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture exchange is pe.v and in the u.s is p-e-m-i-f listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website ellismartreport.com and download the entire ellismart report on itunes did you hear something worth repeating find all segments of this program on our website ellismartinreport.com i'm ellis martin join me now for a conversation with gordon neal vice president of corporate development for silver corp metals trading in the u.s as svm silvercore is a low-cost silver producing canadian mining company with multiple mines in china the company recently commenced commercial production at its gc project in southern china the company's vision is to deliver shareholder value by focusing on the acquisition of underdeveloped projects with resource potential and the ability to grow organically gordon Welcome back to the program. Hi, Alice. Thanks for having me again. I'm looking at all the indicators for silver and gold, and it doesn't look very positive at the moment. The indicators are that the downward trend may continue. What are your thoughts? Yeah, we've been talking to some funds, and we've been on the road, and getting the funds' attention has been a little bit difficult. They're waiting for some kind of turn here. The technical breakdown of gold looks like it's happening. That doesn't help silver, of course, but if you look at Silver Corp itself on a performance basis, even though gold is breaking down and taking silver with it, we're still doing okay, and we still will do okay given our cost point. I like to average down or accumulate more in a market that experiences a downtrend, especially when the ET 
ETF holdings in these areas are growing, and there's still significant buying in the physical metals. Yeah, they are. You're right, and, and it is a good time to buy. And like you say, when it's, it's soft market, we're always looking for bargains. And we consider ourselves a bargain. We, of course, I'm biased being in the company, but we've been running some numbers since we put out our Q4, and we found that Silver Corp unequivocally is the lowest cost, highest margin producer in the silver space. We keep saying it, but when we actually tried to find somebody who had a lower cost or higher margins, even Fresneo's margins, which is the biggest silver producer in the world, has lower margins or not as high margins as we have. So we don't beat the drum enough sometimes, and this is what the CEO is saying to me, is we're a little bit too modest sometimes. We look at how we perform when the silver price drops because of our cost base. We will still do well if silver drops to 15, 14. We're still going to make money. And there's not a lot of silver companies in the space that some of them are losing money now. And you know, if it drops to $10, yeah, we'd be struggling like everybody else. But in these ranges between 11 and 15 $17, we will still make money with these costs and are great. We spoke about your earnings in a previous broadcast, and it seems you have a negative cost of producing silver. But a new potential investor in Silvercore may say, well, they're in China. The consumption is all Chinese, and isn't the Chinese economy contracting? What is your response to that? Well, a couple of things. We're unapologetic for being in China and having low costs and lower labor costs, but those labor costs have been increasing. But the notion that the Chinese economy is slowing, and it has been relative to its really big run-up in the early 2000s, it actually looks like it's growing again. If you look at some of the conference boards and economists we're talking who are putting out their predictions now. So, yeah, one of the things I said earlier is we have very high margins. And one of the guys in my office said, yeah, we don't really have huge smelter charges and marketing charges because we sell our concentrate to the smelter, whereas Fresnio has to sell its silver and sell it into the marketplace. And I looked at the guy and I said, you know what, I'm not going to apologize because I don't have those costs on my side. I look at my numbers, I make money. We're a company that is revenue and profit positive and we have low costs and we're going to continue to have low costs because we know how to manage our business. I've been speaking with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvercorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SBM. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Eric Owens is the President and CEO of Alexandria Minerals Corporation. Alexandria Minerals Corporation trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AZX and in the U.S. as ALXDF. Alexandria is an active, growth-oriented Canadian gold exploration and development company with strategic properties located in the world-class mining districts of Val d'Or, Quebec, Red Lake, Ontario, and Snow Lake, Flin Flon, Manitoba. Alexandria's focus is on its flagship property, the large Cadillac Brake property package in Valdor, which hosts important near-surface gold resources along the prolific gold-producing Cadillac Break, all of which have significant growth potential. Eric, welcome back to the program. We're excited about your 30,000-meter drill program in progress at the Uranata Zone 4. It's sort of a follow-up to our last drill program, which ended in April and for actually for which we're still waiting for some assays. The last 9,100-meter program really kind of verified our conceptual thoughts about Uranata. The idea that we have these act high-grade veins there, and it was really the first serious program that we had to attack these things and see what they're like. So that gave us confirmation of all of this. Even though we're still waiting for some assays, we were able to expand the gold deposit, so to speak, from its original size of about 
300 meters to 700 meters length, all in the upper 250 uh, meters with the past drilling just on the basis of the assays. If the assays come back favorable for the next remaining holes from that program, we should be able even to expand that further, but we'll wait for the assays before we go there. The new drilling is a follow-up to that. Because we have high-grade veins, we have a nugget effect, we have to do some fairly detailed drilling. So in part, this new 30,000-meter program is going to be able to fill in some of the gaps that we still have there, which are quite many of them at this stage. So there's a lot of drilling to be doing to give us confidence about connecting the dots in the subsurface, as well as further step-out drilling. Basically, we're testing a two-kilometer stretch of the target zone, which in our case is the well-known Cadillac break, a major regional fault zone that hosts gold deposits over its length. And then in the upper 250 meters over that two-kilometer width with this 30,000-meter program. And our goal with that is fairly simple. We want to come up with a new resource estimate by the end of the year, a new, more robust resource estimate. And we expect to increase the size of the resources, which were last done in 2009, increase the size considerably. We're expecting a minimum doubling of the gold resources there by the end of the year, and we hope if things go well with this drilling, it'll be quite a bit more than that. So you don't wait necessarily for all the assay results to come in from the 35 holes. You receive some positive news and act on that. Was that the plan all along? Well, that's been sort of the plan all along. We've got places to drill without having to wait for the results in one given area. So we have a main core area, which I call the open pit area, because there's a small open pit on the site there. And that's where the main historical, or I would say current resources lie. And these are what we've expanded already on, but we need fill-in drilling there. So we're keeping busy doing logical, useful work that needs to get done for the future resource estimate. While we're still waiting over on the west, far away basically, uh, what 400 meters away so to speak, for the results to come in. So we're not even worrying about that. We know we're going to get some decent results. We just don't know what they're going to look like at this stage because we don't have the assays and we, we can see the quartz veins existing over there so we know we're still in the system over there. We just got to wait for the assays to know how to better plan our drilling over there. The Valdor area has always been very prolific and discoveries like yours, potential discoveries, just verify that in one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Yes, yes, correct. It's a very active area. They've been mining gold for the better part of 100 years, almost 100 years now in the area. Uh, about 25 million ounces of gold or so have been mined in the immediate Valdor area over that period of time. And then the broader belt, which continues west, uh, you can magnify that by three or four times over that same time period. So it's a prolific area. Everybody, when we first got started here uh, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of people said, that's all the gold has been mined out. And sure enough, since that time, some 26 million new ounces have been discovered. So it's still a good place to be. If you receive the results that you expect toward the end of the year, what's your plan going forward from that point? Our plan is to, of course, get that first stage in our mind, first stage uh, resource estimate out. There's still a lot of growth potential beyond that. We're focused on a little two-kilometer stretch along the Cadillac Break. There's four kilometers west of that till the end of our property, that would be sort of a next follow-up target zone is to test along that four-kilometer stretch because there's indications from historical drill holes that there's been some high-grade gold hits down there over the past 50 or 70 years by the sporadic exploration that has occurred there. We can also do the same going east, and of course we own 20 kilometers in that direction to the east of there. So there's a lot of potential upside, and again, we're keeping the shallow. We're not aiming to drill below about 250 or 300 meters, and, and the 
The idea is to try and see what we can get near the surface first. And of course, we know that the gold deposits, ore deposits in general up in this part of the world, tend to be elongate in the vertical dimension. So if you find something at surface, then it behooves you to start going deeper if you need to. So, so far we're avoiding that, but that's even a longer term down the road sort of option. Now, you've been in the business for quite some time, Eric, and as you said 10 to 15 years ago, you became involved with this area and were very excited. Here it is 2017, and are you more excited than ever about the gold sector, the precious metal sector in general? And how would you tie Alexandria into that as a potential investment opportunity? I actually am. I'm very excited about how things are going and how things are going in general in the industry right now, as well as with Alexandria. I think we're on the right path at a proper time in the general cycle that we've all been through many times in the mining industry. It just seems a fairly natural cyclical industry. So far, we seem to be coming out of a bottom. We have a a fair bit of upside potential within the broader industry. And so our timing is pretty good to be starting to get aggressive in our efforts here. We're still fairly early in that the upward swing in the cycle. The money is still a little bit sticky out there, but people are starting to pay a lot more attention than they were uh, even in the recent past. I'm really pretty excited about the way things are going right now. I've been chatting with Eric Owens of Alexandria Minerals Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AZX and the U.S. as ALXDF. Download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and on your TuneIn Radio app. Join me now for a conversation with Paul Westsells, President and CEO of Western Copper and Gold, trading as WRN on the New York Stock Exchange and WRN on the TSX. Western Copper and Gold is solely focused on developing the world-class casino project located in the politically stable Yukon Territory. Currently in the permitting phase, Casino is poised to be the premier copper gold mine in Canada and the flagship mine for the Yukon. Western Copper and Gold, through its wholly owned subsidiary, Casino Mining Corporation, is committed to developing the casino mine in a manner that provides economic opportunity for all involved while maintaining the highest levels of social and environmental practices. Paul, welcome back to the program. It's great to be back. If you don't mind, give us a quick overview of the company. Western Copper and Gold are developing the casino project up in the Yukon. We're looking at a large copper gold project, 18 million ounces of gold, 10 billion pounds of copper, advanced project. This is a project that's got a full feasibility study working its way through permitting. And not only are we in the Yukon, but you know our neighbors to the right are Gold Corp and the neighbors to the left are uh, Agnico Eagle and Kinross. So it's, a, it's an exciting jurisdiction and it's an exciting place to be. You have a recent news release outlining a Cisco acquiring the Orion Mine Finance Royalty Portfolio. How does that involve Western Copper and Gold specifically? There's a royalty on the project, a 2.75% NSR royalty. We sold a portion of that to Orion Mine Finance in 2012. That's really the money that we've used to finance our feasibility study and the permitting work over the past few years. And they've been, you know, a great partner. But, you know, we're pretty excited to be now working with Cisco. And, you know, Cisco's got a great track record in terms of helping move projects forward and being there. And, you know, a royalty is, you know, no one gets paid in, until the mine's into production. So, it, you know, it's a different sort of partnership, but it's a partnership and, you know, we look forward to moving the project forward with them. Well, clearly, a Cisco and Ryan believe in you. Yeah, we were happy to see that when the news release came out from Cisco and, and Orion, you know, it was a package of 74 royalties and they highlighted the 20 top and then we were in the 20 top royalties there. So it was a big transaction, you know, $1.1 billion is, is what that transaction was for the package of royalties. So we were happy to be featured in that package. 
We've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating again. Goldman Sachs has listed Western copper and gold as their number one copper pick in the world. Keeping this in mind, what would you say to those potential investors considering resource stocks in this market going into the summer? I'm a pretty big believer in copper, and because if you look at what's happening in the world, it's just getting more electrified. There was a article that came out this morning, I was flipping through, it sort of looked at the fact that the copper demand for electric cars is going to increase tenfold. You look at what's happening in China, they're electrifying more and more of that. Interestingly, in China, they actually have a federal mandate there in China to have you know up to 10% of the new cars be electric, I think, in the next 10 years. So it's a big commodity. I mean, in, in terms of materials commodity, I mean, it's sort of second only to iron ore in terms of tons that need to be mined and sold. So it's a big commodity. What we're seeing right now is we're just coming out of an oversupply situation. If you go back to 2010, the number of mines were built and too much supply came online. We're now on the back end of that. And, and that's what you saw really at, in October of last year when you saw the copper price go from $2 to 250 It was the realization that the supply is not going to meet the demand. And really to get the next block of copper online and for the next sort of wave of mines to come online, we need $3, if not 350 copper. I think we're going to see that in the next year. And if you go back and look at what happened in October of last year, copper price went from $2 to 250 very quickly. I went, you know, moved that quickly in, in sort of about three weeks. So I expect the same thing to happen. I mean, right now, copper's nicely sitting at about between 250 and 260 But I think when it moves to $3, it's going to do so quickly. And I think that's going to happen, you know, sometime in the next six months. Speculate, if you will. How high can the price of copper go? Well, if you look at the last cycle, copper went up to about $4.20. So you would expect this cycle for it to sort of hit that and then go higher. I think that $6 copper is a reasonable sort of target. And, you know, you look at that opportunity. I mean, copper now is sitting at 250 and companies such as Western is highly levered to that copper price. Copper at $6, when copper hits that, and this is why you want to buy junior mining names, is that they rise faster than the underlying commodity price rises. So, I mean, when copper went from $2 to 250 our share price doubled. So as copper makes its way up to $6, you can imagine where our share price is going to be. So while copper has been a less speculative play than gold or silver, that could change, couldn't it? No, absolutely. And, you know, I think that it's been fairly unloved for the past few years. But when you saw it break out from 2 to 250 you saw a lot of new investment. That investment has sort of been quiet over the last little while. So I think the opportunity to get in is right now. What's happening with the casino project in the Yukon? We're continuing to move the project, you know, really to being shovel ready. And we think we're about three years away from the project being shovel ready. So we're working on the permitting, we're doing a little bit of the engineering work. We feel pretty confident that we're three years away from really the thing being shovel-ready, and, and that's exciting because moving back, you know, particularly into the copper space, there's not a lot of good projects, economic at today's prices, that are in jurisdictions such as the Yukon. I know that you and members of your team are traveling around the world essentially right now, spreading the word about Western copper and gold. How important is potential shareholder awareness when telling a story such as yours? It's absolutely key. We've been doing a fair chunk of marketing of the company, and really it's, it's on the idea that this is a great copper story, but it's also a great gold story. 
you look at a project with 18 million ounces of gold, 9 million ounces of that gold is in reserve. These are rare animals. There's not a lot of significant size gold deposits out there. And when you're looking at the M&A space and you're looking at the major gold company to sort of go inquire and then get a large amount of gold in, in reserve is, is very, very challenging. And there's not a lot of good projects in good jurisdictions. So it's a real asset for us. That's one of the things that's really been resonating with our shareholders that really look on the gold side of things and then on the copper side of things. You know, this is where it's a great opportunity to get into our name, I think, right now. You've started to see the first movement of copper. You know it's going to move fairly soon, and yet you can still sort of get into the copper names at a good price. Let's not forget that you're surrounded by some of the biggest majors in the business. The last year has been just an exciting time in the Yukon. And you know, Alice, I think you were up there even before some of this stuff started to happen. But I mean, there's been eight different transactions with major companies making significant investment in the Yukon. And importantly, it's not just the Yukon, it's right next to us. I mean, our claims touch Gold Corp to the West and they touch... 20% 20% Ecnico, 20% Kinross vehicle to the east. And we're getting surrounded by all these guys, and it's an exciting time, and we'll see where things go, but it's going to be an exciting summer. I've been speaking with Paul Wessels, President and CEO of Western Copper and Gold, trading as WRN on the New York Stock Exchange and WRN on the TSX. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.